Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I welcome Lucas Marino to the show. We start talking about maintenance task analysis, and then we start to drift off, as usual, talking about a variety of other things, um, one of them being KPIs, where they're useful, how they should be measured, and how we feel they should or should not be used. Uh, we then start to drift into other topics about new employees, um, how to get the most out of technicians, um, and, and ultimately, there is a lot of great stuff in this episode. I really enjoyed chatting with with Lucas. He is always a fantastic guest on the show, so stay tuned for some great tips. But before we get into our episode, a quick message from our sponsors. Hello, everybody. This is Steve Doby here, one of your hosts of Maintenance Disrupted. If maintaining heavy equipment in BC and Alberta is part of your job, I'm excited to tell you about the fuel and lubricant supplier, Star West Petroleum. Having personally worked with Star West in a previous job, I can tell you their service is unmatched, and they are committed to saving you both money and downtime. Their service team learns your equipment and suggests ways to extend its life and overall perform better. I was in the throes of starting a new job at a large-scale mine in BC, and we wanted to improve reliability quickly. One of our top issues was hydrocarbon management, and with the support of StarWest team, we were able to reduce our cost and ultimately chart a better path forward for our hydrocarbon management. My bosses were impressed, but I really can't take the credit. StarWest Petroleum did all the legwork. StarWest is a top-tier distributor of Phillips 66 lubricants, Kendall Performance Motor Oils, Phillips 66 Aviation Lubricants, Redline Synthetics, and Aspen Alkylate Fuel for Professionals. Also available from StarWest is clear and marked gasoline and diesel, heating and furnace oil, but really it's their customer service that stands out. For more information, go to starwestpetroleum.ca or send me an email and I will get you in contact with the StarWest team. You'll be glad you did, and so will your equipment. Now, here's your episode. Hello, this is Steve Doby, and I want to tell you about our upcoming Maintenance Mastermind, Mobile Equipment Edition. In this mastermind, we have five experts covering six topics over 12 weeks focused around mobile equipment and the people who maintain these assets. Each topic will have a training video, an interactive workshop, and a group assignment which we'll review in another workshop. Joining our mastermind session, you will learn how to manage your mobile assets better, you will connect with experts in your field, and meet others in the mobile maintenance field that can help support you for many years into your career. This training is for everybody, maintenance managers, engineers, planners, technicians, anybody involved with maintenance on mobile assets would be a great fit for this course. Registration is $1,500 plus tax, and if you are a student or unemployed, please reach out and we'll work together to make sure that you can still attend this course. For more information, go to our website at www.maintenancedisrupted.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I am your host, Steve Doby, and today I welcome Lucas Marino back to the show. How's it going today, Hello, Lucas? Steve. Hey, man. How's it going? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and today we're going to be talking about maintenance task analysis. Yeah. So my first question, Lucas, uh, I, I think most people are familiar. Um, 
but why don't we give them a quick quick rundown of who you are? Okay. Yep. So uh, my name is uh, Lucas, and I work for a company named Amentum as a uh, kind of like their lead uh, logistics engineer for uh, submarines for the U.S. Navy. And I also am founder and owner of East Partnership, which is a uh, knowledge management company. We, we deliver courses to people that maintain and, and manage complex assets. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what I do. Um, I live here in southeast Virginia. We were just talking about the weather. You know, no snow, just tons of pollen right now. And uh, so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I spent about 21 years in the Coast Guard as a as a diesel mechanic. And then I became a well, I didn't spend the whole 21 years as a diesel mechanic, about the first 10. And then I became a naval engineer after that and served my time as a as a as an officer afloat. And uh, yeah, then I retired and went to work in uh, building building ships for the government as a civilian. So um, I'm on the design and and uh, and logistics sustainment side of of that coin now. I'm always jealous when you tell me what you do. I'm like, that sounds like such a cool job. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. It's a little stressful, <laughs> but it's fun. Uh, I love it. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so maintenance task analysis. What, you know, I, when I think about that, I've got some, some ideas that come into my head on what that is, but um, what is it? Yeah. So this is like, uh, you know, it's funny because when you, you know, when I, when I retired from the military, and went into the civilian sector, uh, you know, trying to become a consultant, get my feet under me. I was using all these terms like maintenance task analysis and level of repair analysis. People were looking at me like I had two heads. They're like, what is that, man? You know, a lot of people were skeptical because they're like, hey, I've been doing this for 20, 30 years. I've never heard of that. What is it, right? Is that maintenance planning? Is that part of maintenance estimation? What is that? And uh, so maintenance task analysis is one of the forms of supportability analysis that the Department of Defense is, is fully invested in during the design and acquisition and sustainment of complex military equipment. And really, when you, when you boil it down, what it is, is it's an analytical, logical method for you to uh, take a, a recommended or prescribed maintenance task, perform it, decom decompose it down to its individual steps, create the procedure, right? and document all the stuff that it takes to do and support the task. So the number of technicians, the number of engineers, if there's, if there's that layer, what type of technicians, what types of tools they're gonna need, everything from basic hand tools all the way up to um, special equipment and advanced um, special tools. Training implications, do you need unique training for you to perform this maintenance task? Uh, what about supply chain implications? What type of supplies? And the supplies aren't just parts, they're also consumables, right? So we were talking about oil and petroleum products before we went live. That's one of the things that you would, uh, you know, often find as a consumable or greases, oils, you know, liquid gasket materials, things like that. So anyways, in, in aggregate, you, you do this analysis, you document all the steps, you verify the task. That's very important, right? You're not just taking what the OEM has handed to you and said, okay, here's a list of things to do to complete this maintenance task. You've actually gone out there in your operating environment, in your maintenance environment, and created this process off of that recommendation, right? That's, that's kind of like the norm. Otherwise, you're using 
a FAMICA or a FAMIA, some recommended maintenance action from another analysis like that to say, hey, you got to do this analysis. There is no procedure. You have to create one. And so you could use maintenance task analysis to do that as well. You may look at a currently used maintenance task, right? Something similar. Maybe, maybe we talk about, for an example, like a diesel engine, and you already have a similar type of engine on site. And you know you've got a similar maintenance action for that piece of equipment, but it's obviously going to be different for this one. You would take that procedure, you could use that as like a template, if you will. Um, so yeah, that's that's the that's like maintenance task analysis in a in a one minute primer. It's really powerful because of the data that you collect. A lot of people look at this and go, oh, cool. Well, great. You just told me how to complete a maintenance action. Why is that so complex? That's that's extremely valuable for obvious reasons, right? Like let's think about task duration, right? You're gonna perform this maintenance task. Your schedulers need to know how long you're gonna to need to do it. OEM prescribes 30 minutes. You go out and perform the maintenance task analysis and you realize it actually takes you an hour because you have interferences in your plant or your you know, configuration of your equipment that aren't in the OEM's lab or whatever, wherever they created their maintenance task, um, their procedure. And you can now use that maintenance task duration to drive scheduling, right? So it's the collection of all those individual pieces of data that can help inform scheduling. Um, it can help inform planning. It can help inform budgeting. And uh, in, in, the, in the greater logistics engineering world, and when you think logistics, don't think UPS or you know, moving parts from point A to point B in the military, it's any single thing to support the operation of that asset, right? So in the logistics engineering world, you would take all this data and you would put it in a database, a repository. Some people would use like a CMMS, right? And you would keep this repository as the authoritative data source for that piece of equipment. So if anyone wanted to know what part is needed, you would go to that authoritative data source and it would be located there. Let's say you have a configuration change on the piece of equipment that's pushed out by the manufacturer or by yourselves or whatever. And that change would be made in that database. Next time the maintenance uh, you know, community went to pull that maintenance task to perform it, that supply chain information would already be updated, right? All that information would be centrally managed. So that's, that's a huge part of the value proposition for this. And that becomes more and more important as we move more toward uh, you know, digital operations. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh... That's fascinating. Um, and it really sounds like it's um, like we talk about job plans a lot. And, you know, it, it sounds like this is the job plan. And then with a lot of important information that's also around that, um, yeah. that, we, that when you think of just building a job plan, like if I build a job plan for an engine exchange, you know, it's kind of when that engine is dropped on the floor next to the unit before it gets put in, not so much what the supply chain and what the impacts are before and and longer term after like there's some immediate after your job plan like you'll have some cleanup steps and whatnot but it it really takes that whole process from um i guess that creation of that work order and all the steps that you'll follow until that that job is fully done and can be closed Correct. Yeah. And, and it's not just like for preventive maintenance, right? So in like the example you have, you have a, what we would call like a special evolution, right? Where you're installing a piece of equipment that's going to happen once or twice in the life cycle of that piece of equipment might happen multiple times in the life cycle of your plant, right? Mm -hmm. Where you may rotate that engine out every X amount of years for 
overhaul and re reinstallation or whatever. Um, so you could you could uh, you could use the maintenance task analysis format and methodology for any applicable task that involves all these different elements of support. So you're absolutely correct. Yeah. So you know one of the problems I can see is is there a level of detail that's too much? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So think about this is is uh, kind of like in step of the Famica, right? Criticality is important. Um, you're not going to do this on some really basic equipment that doesn't have a high maintenance demand, big, big maintenance footprint, big budget footprint, any of that stuff. You know, it's like, great. You know, am I going to do a maintenance task analysis on a portable air compressor that's, you know, <laughs> I'm buying, I'm buying two or three of these things a year anyway. And it's not because I can't maintain them. It's just because they never stop running, <laughs> you know, they get worn out, you know, and there's no amount of maintenance that's going to prevent that. Um, you know, that there's, there's elements like that that you're definitely not going to to uh, to find that as a viable candidate. You look at criticality and the scope of the work and investment in maintaining that piece of equipment is something that drives the analysis. So my quick rule of thumb is if it was important enough to do a Famica on and you did a Famica or a Famia and you came out of that process knowing that this had impacts on some, you know, to in the military would say mission critical essentiality, right? Or some type of critical function to operations that you cannot sacrifice, it's that critical, um, then you would wanna consider it a candidate for an MTA. Yeah, yeah, that seems to make a lot of sense. Um, so when, you know, you talked about the digital piece of, of it there, like what, where do you think, you know, we, we've got a lot of different CMMSs out there. There seems to be lots of new ones coming up all the time and there's, you know, AI being built into them and, uh, and a lot of other things. Where do you see, like, uh, obviously having this uh, more standardized process to the way you do, to the way we do our job and the way we execute our jobs um, is going to have some benefits, but where do you see, like, what are the measurable impacts that we're going to have? And, you know, how, how are we leveraging that kind of industry 4.0 within it, you think? Yeah, so the other side of the coin at work is model-based systems engineering. So <clears throat> by, by education, I'm a systems engineer, and so I deal with a lot of that digital transformation, although I'm not a software guy at, in, by any means. Right? None of us are. Yeah, I'm a multidisciplinary <laughs> systems engineer, which is, you know, they bring all of us to the table, and there's a software person, there's a non-software person. You know, I'm, I'm more of the um, ship design and construction guy. Um, but it's all systems, right? And so we're integrating a lot of those um, those those new data practices and systems into our into our sustainment community. We've we've traditionally had where you are trying to capture data from an operating system, like with a CBM Plus type program, right? Where it's we're looking for condition based maintenance. We're going to use those readings to to help inform future plans or whatever. And that's, that's all great, but that's only a small slice of the pie, in my opinion. I think when you look at logistics support analysis repositories or records, um, you're looking at the entirety of the data that it takes to sustain an asset throughout its life cycle, right? And that's why we, we lean heavily on the life cycle sustainment focus in, in, for, for these assets. Because So the Department of Defense of the United States did a study a few years back. They found that 60 to 70% of the overall uh, total cost of ownership was involved in the sustainment phase of a life cycle. 
which is basically where most of the people that are listening to this probably live. It's an operating piece of equipment and they have to make, make it work until it doesn't, right? So that's the sustainment life cycle or in-service phase of an asset. And when we talk about data and collecting data and, and storing and how's like people just get, I think just get obsessed with the fact that like there's, there's different mentalities on data, right? It's like all data is valuable eventually (laughs) So collect as much as you can, which is, I guess, you know, I'll take my head out of the military strategy side for a minute. Some countries live and eat and sleep and breathe on that type of Intel, right? Where just get everything. We'll work with it later. Um, It's no different in the maintenance and reliability community. Right. But to me, you have to be a little bit more calculated. Like you should be designing your, your data program so that it provides value to your overall um, maintenance programming. Right. So you're going to want to collect the right data in the right frequency and the right type of data. And then you're going to want to store it and access it in a way that's controllable and the data is maintainable and that the tools you select to use that data, you have to be very careful about because, you know, we, we went through this with um, choosing between I'll, and I'll, I'll stay agnostic with vendors. But we have, <laughs> let's say, vendor A and vendor B both have software that can do really, really cool optimization stuff. And this would be optimizing the number of spare parts that you need for a fleet of assets. And so some of those software look at optimization calculations differently than others. Some calculate it at what we call the, uh, the, the line replacement or line repairable unit level, right? The part, com- the component. Um, and then others look at it across the, the asset. And then others even look at it across the fleet. They're trying to optimize the number of spare parts across the fleet. So I think software selection is very important. You want to make sure that it's aligned with your application and your end user. And a lot of that will dictate what type of data you collect, because a lot of these systems are kind of pre-built to process certain data, you know, and certain metadata. And so you're going to need to look at it and say, all right, well, you know, I just spent $30,000 on this whiz-bang software and it's, it seems unfun- you know, non-functional because... I don't have the ability to gather and collect all this data that it needs to to do its job properly. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's, um, I, I've been in a couple of companies where they've gone down the the path of a new CMMS and, um, every time you you take the package one. So like, if you take, it doesn't matter if it's SAP Maxima or whatever it is, you know, there's, there's data standards around it. One of the most common ones for, the, the resource industry is ISO 14224, which yeah. talks about how um, how your data should be laid up, what your failure modes are, what the, all that stuff means. Great standard. Big, <laughs> I read it probably, or pull from it probably once or twice a week. Um, yeah. The, <laughs> pardon me, what? I said I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but when we're, when we're looking at, uh, at that software and, you know, I get in this conversation way too often and it's, you know, we are different. Um, The application we have is so different from, from everybody else that we can't build on a standard. I was like, well, okay. I I get that you do have, we do have some unique operating context pieces. Like there is that in there, but do we really believe that we are wildly different from everybody else out there that we can't apply this, this standard to what we're doing? And, you know, it goes across the board to, to anything. And like when we're, 
when we're thinking about that and thinking about and, and your maintenance task analysis, and you're like, okay, well, this job takes an hour here versus half an hour from what the OEM said. Like, that's generally the level of differences that you have is things will take longer or shorter, but it's all the same bits and pieces just fitted together a little differently for right. your application. Yeah, so, it, I couldn't agree more. Like the whole data standard thing is very interesting because it, it, like in the MTA course I put out uh, there, we talk about the GIA standard, triple zero seven. And I talk a little bit about um, the international standard for logistics uh, data, which is S3000L. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're both great. They both do similar things. You know, the one's going to be prescribed for one system, one's prescribed for another. Uh, you know, the, the, the Navy right now is moving toward this thing called model-based product support, which is basically a fancy way of saying we're going to take all this supportability analysis and all the data and all the tools and bring them under one program, multiple software functioning in one program one authoritative database that they're all pulling from. And by the way, there's like a dozen standards <laughs> at play, right? Because, you know, we look at this element of support through this lens. We look at this element of support through this lens. And it's no different in a, in a company, um, like you said, that, that has maybe uh, a couple of different functions within it that the, the, the standard doesn't line up exactly with and they prefer one over the other. My big thing is this, I mean, is it our inability to change our inability to adapt or is it that we're really different right so think about the, the you know the old adage of control the controllables is that something i can change through decision making or is it a physical impossibility right if it's something like if it's just us changing our language from part name to item name you know something simple like that why are we so resistant to change you know it's a, sometimes it's really hard for people to get their heads around there on that and, and that could be a go, big software change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's software different. It's like, mm, <laughs> I don't know, you want to pay for that. IT um, departments are never happy with those conversations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, you know, it's a little harder than, than people think, especially when you're dealing with cops, right? Because you have to yeah. pull a company. They're not going to do that work for free. Um, and, and maybe sometimes they will if you're buying enough of their product. But uh, most of the time they're like, mm, that sounds kind of odd to us, but whatever. So before we dive too far into this, or maybe we're already <laughs> too far, I don't know. I just wanted to say one thing about CMMS, any of them. I don't care which one you pull. You need to use the thing properly. Like, it's kind of like talking about any sport, right? Like the fundamentals. Like, I can't tell you how many times we've been called to go look at someone's CMMS or, or whatever. And you, you're like, so what are you using it for? And then you're like, oh, yeah, we do some parts management with it, a little bit of maintenance re recording. And that's, you know, that's it. And you're like wow, that's a total waste of money. You guys spent a fortune on that software and you're not even using it. But they're calling you there to talk about some complex thing they can't solve. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> get the, master the fundamentals before you try to you know, take on the world with this thing. And this is why I love talking about maintenance task analysis because we get so hung up and, and half of the show is about all the fancy tools and and, and, and great things that are out there. And we're so interested in trying all these new sensors and all this new stuff, but we don't go back to basics and we don't remember, hey, we need to actually figure out how to maintain our equipment, how to do those jobs effectively. That has nothing to do with sensorization or technology. Um, there are software tools out there that can help us be more efficient with it, but we need to figure out how to maintain it and how to monitor it at the most basic level before we 
before we get fancy with it. Like there, there's so many failures that everybody's experiencing and a sensor isn't going to solve it. Sensor might help you find it sooner, yeah. but it's not going to solve the issue for you. What are you right. doing? Is it, you know, when you talk about the metric re rework is, is a f interesting one to talk about because it's, it has a lot of negative connotation within it because it's, you know, if you're doing rework, then you're blaming your frontline technicians, which chances are it's not their fault. They were not set up for success. <laughs> and yeah. through with a good maintenance task analysis and a good job plan, um, yeah, we fall to these metrics to, to try and measure their performance, but we're not doing the things we need to to bring that up to a new level and go back to those basics. Yeah, I mean, these tools are, are not just there for measurement, right? They're there for continuous improvement. And continuous yeah. improvement isn't just maintenance. Continuous improvement is, and I hate to get squishy here, but it's a bit of a mindset, right? Like you have to think about the totality of your program. It's not just little elements. And when you do that, you should be thinking about the fundamentals of the totality of that program. It's kind of like, you know, I mean, dude, we could we could talk forever about like, <laughs> you know, the house is only as strong as the foundation and all yeah. those things. And it's absolutely true, right? But so I mean, think about pictures many, of pyramids and <laughs> there's yeah, a spot yeah, I mean, missing. About, exactly. And think about how many people are coming and saying, well, you know, you got this brand new whiz bang technology or or new tool for you to do to make your job easier. And you're like, oh, you mean the job we're not even doing a good job with with without advanced stuff? <laughs> like, you know, how about you have a decent maintenance program that can then handle the technology and do something with it? Because, you know, in the case of the CMMS that I was bringing up earlier, they had this great CMMS, but they weren't necessarily using it. It's not that the tool didn't work. It's not that they didn't buy the right thing. It's not that they didn't have the right intentions, but they just failed to execute on the basic fundamentals of a sound maintenance program. And so the tool became quasi useless. And, you know, it can only do so much. It can't replace the fact the fact you know the fundamentals of good maintenance programming and performance and and to me the programming is part of it that you know you know that's what the management get involved in but the actual execution is what makes that come to life right i'm trying to remember what the old adage is about plans you know it, it, you know we used to say that you know plans never survive first contact with the enemy <laughs> yeah something like that uh some something like that you know they have to be you have to be flexible with plans. You, you have to have good planning. You have to have good programming, but you should expect to adapt to execution um, and you should expect to program execution so that it aligns with the plan and, and that everything works well. And then if there's some misalignment, you adjust that, right? And that's, that's when you can start extracting more value from all these digital things. I mean, think about how many companies have dashboards and measurements and all this stuff and all they're measuring is failure. They're like, this sucks, that sucks, this sucks, you know, this, this stuff over here is pretty good, you know, and then, and then it's just uh, chasing, chasing the thing that's not working right. And then yeah. when you go in and spend some time with them, you realize, well, they don't have a good tool management program and they don't have a, a, a good maintenance uh, procedure, uh, you know, whether it be development or, 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 uh, or uh, execution, whatever. Um, they're not doing any of this stuff very well. So it's no wonder to me that quality is suffering in performance, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go too deep into metrics because I think it's, it's a, it is a topic that we beat to death a little bit, but 
we need to, uh, when we're measuring and monitoring and, and having that conversation with people about their performance on metrics or the, the performance on metrics. Um, so like the focus, like you said, it's always in the wrong spot. Like focus on availability. Well, day to day, everybody has input into availability. It's not something that one person can affect major change on. Um, but when you start looking at things like, you know, schedule compliance, PM compliance, and, you know, you focus on look that leading versus lagging indicator, like let's, let's focus on this area. You know, if we make sure that we don't do a lot of firefighting, focus on the reactive bits and let's make sure we do this um, preventative and proactive bit before we move on to that reactive state, we're going to keep our availabilities up and we're going to see that break in work and that reactive work go down. But if you, yeah. if you switch and it's about, it's talking about that lever, like if you switch and you let these metrics fall, the schedule compliance, PM compliance, and you just focus on what is down to try and get those quick wins so you don't take an availability loss, that's when you're going to have a problem long-term and you're setting yourself up for systemic long-term issues. Right. Yeah. I um, like to think of those senior metrics as strategic metrics that can't stand on their own. Right. Mm -hmm. It's strategy, but it's not tactical. It's not down at the deck plate, turn in a wrench type of metric. A sub O, you know, availability, you know, operational availability, A sub M, um, availability for, for uh, ma uh, maintenance or material availability. Sorry. Um, those metrics are great. Uh, strategic metrics, but all the other stuff feed them. They support them. Mm -hmm. And if you let the if you let the, the 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 metrics closer to the performer falter, A sub O will falter. A sub M will falter. Um, you know these aren't to me. They're they're all related to each other, right? And so if we fail to look at quality across the the lower level metrics, the operational and tactical metrics, we're going to lose the strategic metric. And most of your most of your organizations that are managing metrics well have kind of understood that, right? And they've learned how to not treat one as more important than the other. They're just measurements, right? They tell us yeah. different things. But all those lower level metrics, they're all telling us what's going to happen with A sub O. They're all telling us what's going to happen with A sub M if we, if we listen to them, right? Yeah. Just to your point. Well, I always laugh because like you've got key performance indicators, KPIs. And when companies have like 50 KPIs, I'm like, are they really, are they really key or a lot of these just performance indicators? We, you yeah. need to think about how they tie in together. You need to think about which one drives which one and like, and to your point, like which ones are, are the tactical ones, which ones are the strategy one and don't build pro projects or like uh, small projects trying to address those strategy ones because it's if you just blanketly say i want to fix availability on this fleet that doesn't that doesn't actually help anybody it's great to say look here's our target availability we want to get there in this time frame sure mm -hmm. but if you're looking at availability on a day-to-day -day basis to try and and pull something out of it it's going to be you're not going to have a good time and it's going to make everybody else miserable working for you because they're getting hammered on a metric that they can't control yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I, I think that investing, but I love your point about having too many like strategic uh, 
you know, you're browbeating the wrong guy with the strategic metric. It's the thing he can't control, you know, uh, writ large. Like he can, he can, he can make a small impact on it or she can make a small impact on it, but they can't, they don't own all of Asabo. They can't do it. It's, they're never going to. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, I used to not talk to my crew about that. They understood that, that the equipment should be running. <laughs> you know, if I come to them with fleet availability metrics, they'd be like, so are we doing better or worse than the other ships? Because we want to be the best. <laughs> they just want to brag and write. They're really like, you know, the ace of bow number, they're like, sounds good. Um, but that's not what they're there for. That's not what they're aiming for. It's not what they eat, you know, eat, sleep and breathe. It's not, it's not part of their day to day. So yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's like talking to the wrong audience. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, that audience, especially like the technicians and the, the frontline guys and, and even the maintenance planners and, and, and whoever else, like looking at that rework piece and that quality of work, like I think that is something that is easy to communicate to those teams and get them on board for doing. You have to obviously bring it in the right way because as soon as you say, I'm gonna measure rework, there is gonna be an interesting conversation around yeah. that. But mm-hmm. if you know you bring in the maintenance task analysis and you say, look, here is, here is something, uh, and I know that affects far more than just rework, but like here is, we want to bring in this program. We want to bring in a maintenance task analysis. Um, we're trying to figure out the best place to start with that. And here's these, these measures that we're going to affect. Um, yeah. And then you start to get that, that buy-in and that input into it. And then like I imagine in your maintenance task analysis that is not just being developed by somebody secluded in an office. Um, and it is a, collaborative approach to to getting that data and getting that information on the right way yeah, it'd be absolutely useless if it was some dude sitting in a desk you know in a, in a room somewhere the ideal maintenance task analysis is that you may have that initial list built out by some dude at a desk somewhere but then you have to take it and you have to perform it with the performers in the environment i mean that's like ideal i get it you can't do that in every case but you should try I, and get as close to that as possible I, lo- I love that statement. You have to perform it with the technicians. Yeah, I, they should be doing the task. <clears throat> and that is something that we don't see nearly enough of, I think. And, and I think it was uh, with Dylan Day on the show, and he, he put out a challenge there for people to go and go to the front lines and spend a day, a week, do that on a frequent basis, out there in the shop, like put on coveralls, turn wrenches with them, and mm-hmm understand what they're doing and you need that background you need to go and do that work to put out any quality material in my mind like if you're not engaging them and working with them and if you get them to sit down in an office and talking about a technician most technicians if they sit down in an office and you say okay tell me how you're going to do this job yeah they're not they're gonna be like well so here's some of the key steps, but it's not until they're sitting there with the tools in their hands where they're like, okay, now this is the next thing. And it's amazing how, how elegant they are with, uh, with what they're doing and not being able to articulate that or write that down isn't a bad thing. Like right. that's what we're there to help them do, but it's about getting that knowledge from them and putting yeah. it into a place that's useful for everybody. So we used to use, uh, so we used to use the training center to try and do this when we could in the Coast Guard because we had the engines mocked up in a real environment, 
you know, fully operational engine. It wasn't inside the ship's engine room. I get it, but it was as close as we could get before we got there. And it was the next best thing to the engine room on the ship. So we would perform the maintenance task there, document every step. We had the right level maintainers, you know, that we were prescribing doing the actual task on the engine. The facilitator was recording it and recording it. And it was each step, everything they used, everything that came in, everything that went out, everything that was documented, every, every duration of every step, and then the aggregated duration for the entire task. And then what we would do is say, okay, this is a verified maintenance task, but it needs to be validated out in the fleet. And we would send it out to the fleet and say, hey, you know, one of these ships, next time you have to do this task, validate this task. And we would send the analyst out to the ship and they would work with the crew. And it was cool for the crew too, because the analysts had already been involved in this. And they were like, oh yeah, we ran into this problem when we did it in the lab. <laughs> uh, but look at this, the time is different, right? Because we have an interference here. We've got a filter coalescer, you know, in the way or whatever, you know, something different than the ship, than, than the lab had. So you absolutely have to get out there and you have to do it with the technicians. You also have to use their resources, right? Um, one of the things you can account for in your notes, but not necessarily in the analysis itself, is like the time it takes for them to get the part, right? So it may take 30 minutes to do the maintenance task when you have everything, but they end up with a half hour delay or an hour delay in getting the part from the stores on the ship. So people think, well, it's in the storeroom. How long could it possibly take? So now, you know, you're looking at a 30 minute task, but you don't have all your supplies yet. That 30 minute task is a 30 minute task when you have everything. Yeah. So this, this is the stuff that like the crew can start getting smarter about because you're going to leave and they're going to be left there to do the maintenance themselves. And if they don't have the, the joys of having everything prepackaged and delivered to them before they go do it, like you see in a lot of facilities, um, then they have to start doing that activity themselves. Another part about um, having the uh, technicians involved is a lot of times they find gaps in the process that was provided by the OEM. So we see this a lot where you take an OEM provided uh, procedure, you do your first run MTA on it. And during that process, you end up with more steps than the OEM provided because they just didn't document certain things. And your, your technicians are like, hey, make sure you put this on there. And by the way, it was a three minute step and you're, down there, jot it down. And so the analyst has to be able to understand all that stuff and see that. And the analyst can be anyone that's smart on that piece of equipment. It, it, it helps to have an analyst that's worked in that same trade mm -hmm. before and has done that type of work. Because later on, when they go back and they're putting this all together, they can go, yeah, that doesn't sound right. Or, yep, I remember this and we had to do X. And it's not just a shot in the dark or waiting a week to get a response from the team you just worked with. Yeah, absolutely. That is... Yeah, you know that's that's so important, and I find it. And in mining, it's big, and and in particular the maintenance in mining, where we get a lot of engineers, myself included, that come in, and we've never worked on a shop floor. We've never worked. We've never pulled wrenches. I'm not very good with my hands, um, and you know that innate understanding that some people have of the equipment, or that you get from working for years on it, just isn't there and so how do you bring how do you get that well either increase that skill um which i tackled by spending time on the floor by just helping people turn wrenches and you know handing filters and asking hey what are you doing kind of thing right um but we don't 
you know, a lot of organizations, you bring in these people, you say, okay, now you're doing a maintenance task analysis. It's a, a fresh engineer right out of school, never turned a wrench in his life. And we're sitting there asking him to build, do this analysis. And, and he's no idea. And you're going to get, it's like your CMMS. You're not going to get the good quality in if you don't put good qual or good quality out if you don't put the good quality in. That's and right. not saying that person can't learn how to do it, but you need to put together a proper training and upskilling program to get them there where yeah. so many of these analyses fall to these more green uh, individuals coming into an organization. And, you know, Absolutely. it's a great, great place to learn, but they can be the secondary on it. They, they can support it and, and right. do everything. So. Yeah, they can be the guy holding the clipboard and yeah. recording all this stuff. And that's absolutely a learning experience for them, um, you know, to be right there recording everything for the maintainers. The other, the other thing I see in maintenance task analysis is they'll grab the experts to do the maintenance task analysis. They're like, hey, you guys, we're going to go perform this thing. And they're like, well, my crew is busy. Like, all right, well, you're going to go with us and you're going you're gonna to perform the steps. And now you've got like a, a master technician doing the work that we're going to prescribe to a journeyman. And they're, they're whipping right through it. <laughs> right? And you go, yeah, for us, it's like a senior chief or a master chief or like a master chief. But yeah, we're not going to ask the master chief to do this. We're going to wait to get the right technician. Um, yeah. We might have the master chief lead the effort, but we're not going to have them do the work and record it just so we can get this check in the box and get this MTA done because it has to be the prescribed performer doing the task. That's the whole point is to get <laughs> as accurate as possible. Um, and so it wouldn't help to give it to the new engineer. It wouldn't help to give it to the guy who's been there 30 years and who's never touching this stuff. It's not going to be the one performing it. You want to give it to the one who's actually going to perform the task. So I, I love that point about the engineer. As a matter of fact, uh, I was talking to Jesus Safante last week about RCM and some of the things we see failing in RCM. And we both had the same example of handing a book to a new engineer. It's like a newly graduated engineer and saying, hey, Go learn about reliability and maintenance. Here's here's uh, Mowbray or whatever, you know. Go get smart, and now you're going to help build a program. <laughs> it's 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 going to be rocky, right? It's not the right thing to do. Same thing with the maintenance task analysis. You know, you don't want to do that to them. Uh, now that person can be really smart on the on the task, and they uh, uh, or the the analysis itself, and they can get really smart on the standards that drive those tasks that define a maintenance task analysis, not the task itself, but the actual analysis. Like they can go read S3000L and be the one person at the analysis that read the standard and said, oh, look, we're supposed to be doing X, Y, and Z. They can do that. They're smart enough to do that. Yeah. Just yeah, don't put the wrench in his hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, I don't know what's happened and maybe this is getting a little off topic, but we've come to a place where as soon as you get somebody new into an organization, we're looking for immediate value from them. Okay. Here's the list of things you need to accomplish in your first year. Get to it. Like yeah. there's no upskilling. There's no training. Like, you know, sure. If you hire a senior person with 20 years experience, you can expect a certain level of, uh, output from them because there's the expectation that they know something and hopefully you're recruiting an interview process you validated that they have what you need but if you're bringing in new new engineers new technicians new somebody who's this is their first maybe even second job like um there is going to be a long 
process of getting them upskilled, there's going to be areas they can provide value right away. But to get to full capacity, it is going to take time. And what is it? You need to be working at a job for working at something for 10,000 hours before you're an expert on it. Like yeah. that's, you know, we forget that, that you have you to meet someone who's been doing it for 10,000 hours and you go, you're an expert on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I like somebody called me an expert on something. I'm like, no, I'm not an expert on anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Experts, a funny thing that to have to wear around your neck, right? You're like, Oh, I'm going to screw something up. <laughs> I can tell you who knows more than me. That's what's important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know where to find the information. So what I like, I like that point you were making about, um, you know, this, this unre unreasonable expectation. Uh, it, this is, this is prevalent on, on ships and it's just an, just an example. I mean, it's everywhere. Right. But this is just, you know, my, my own personal experience is they send you these new junior officers. They were at the Academy. They're whiz bang, smart kids. They're, they're highly educated and they come in, they're not tradesmen. They've, they've not sailed uh, on ships for anything other than like familiarization cruises and things like that. Maybe a summer on a ship in, you know, once um, for the military, but it's not the same as being embedded somewhere for many years. And so they'll send them to the ship. And I used to tell the crew, make them the officer you want them to be. They're never gonna be the technician, right? They're never gonna be the one turning the wrenches all the time. This person's coming in here as an engineer. We're going to develop them into my job, into being the engineer officer, the chief engineer. So you make them the chief engineer you want to work for one day, because in about five years, that's probably going to happen. They're going to be the chief engineer. And then you're going to all be sitting around going, well, if they're great, it was your fault. And if they're not, it was your fault. <laughs> like, make them what you want them to be. So have a little bit of empathy, understand the situation they're in. Understand not everyone learns the same way, communicates the same way, does everything the same way. And them being thrown into the fire in their world of work is different than you being thrown into the fire in your world of work if you came in there with, you know, trade school, right? So like, like say you're a new tradesman. That new tradesman, I don't want them turning wrenches on everything. They're going to break something. They're not familiar with our plant yet, right? Uh, we did the same thing with the kids coming out of our rating schools, our trade schools in the military. They weren't allowed to work on anything by themselves until we figured out we could trust them. And it's not because they're up to bat, you know, no good or they're, they're, they're devious. We just don't have confidence in their skills yet as a technician. And once we gain like, okay, they're a really good mechanic or electrician or whatever, then we could start empowering them and trusting them a little bit. But we needed some time of observation and some, and a little bit of mentorship and supervision. And to your point, they, even someone that's got experience, if they come into a new plant, with new rules, different equipment layout, configurations, safety measures, like all these things. They don't live in your world. They haven't been here for 20 years, fully immersed in your language and in your ways. So, you know, it's gonna take them a little while to get up to speed and you should be understanding of that. But uh, we should also, you know, the one thing I used to measure on them was what I called give a damn factor, <laughs> right? I was okay yeah, if I'm it was taking them a little longer. I was okay if they were, you know, making the same mistakes a few times and they were, they were acknowledging it. They were trying to work on it. As long as I saw they give a damn and they were actually trying to fix it. I was okay. That always worked for me. What didn't work for me was a low give a damn factor, low work ethic, untrustworthiness, that stuff, that that's different, right? So don't treat the people that haven't given you a chance to prove who they are. Like you don't trust them. Like they're untrustworthy. Like they don't care. Like they don't have anything to offer yet. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know like it's, there's always an interesting uh, dynamic between engineers and, and technicians and, and the ones that seem to have the most success are, you know, cause those technicians, um, they're, when that new engineer gets there, they're going to give them a hard time. Um, but the best situation that I've seen and what has come up with the best engineers has been, okay, you've got to this new place. Here is, you, you're here as an engineer, sure. But you know what? You're not actually going to start that engineering job for a month, two months. You're going to go and sit there and you're going to be with these technicians for the next six, six to eight weeks and yeah. just do whatever they need you to do. Like what they teach you may or may not be right. Depends on, on their personal views, but you're going to understand so much more about the organization because the technical problems, like we said before, it's, it's all the same bits. It's bearings, it's gears, it's whatever it is, just orientated a little differently for, for each application. What's different in an organization and what you can't learn in school um, is how to interact and how to, get your projects over the line and, and get your projects done because you need those frontline technicians to have buy and you need to be able to communicate with them and and work with them to actually accomplish what you want to do right there's yeah, no value absolutely. in the back office there's absolutely yeah we, we used to uh i so one of my one of my mantras with the new student engineers was you we're here to support the crew during their work hours and then when they leave we can start our work hours and they would all go, ah, you know, we worked what we call tropical hours where they were reduced hours on the, on the, on the crew that were performing a lot of the maintenance t tasks and, and doing a lot of that technician type work. Um, and then we would put in some hours beyond their time to make sure we got all the engineer stuff done um, because we needed to be supporting them during the daytime and making sure they had what they needed. And they, they, we, we were providing them the right environment and resources to do their job. And oh, by the way, you should be down there with them learning, you know, so I didn't want my guys sitting in their state rooms or offices, um, typing away all day, listening to tunes, hanging out with their bestie uh, in their state room and not learning what their crew is doing. Yeah. You know, how are you going to run a crew that you, you don't you've never you've never learned anything about? How are you going to interact with them in a way where you gain mutual respect if they don't ever see you? So. You know, it was really important that they don't spend all their time down there because no, no one wants them down there all day. <laughs> yeah. You know, they didn't want me down there at all. They were like, oh, he's down here. Something must be wrong. You know, yeah. I could come down, hang out, tell a sea story, drink a cup of coffee. But then I had to go. And I understood that. Um, but, you know, for them, it was different. They were in development and um, they needed to spend some time getting to know each other and learning about them. And, and I, I used to have a saying. There isn't anyone on this ship that doesn't want to show you what they know. They all want to show you what they know. People love to show you how good they are at something. You know, it helps with their pride and their confidence. And, and it's what they really like to do. So even the people that are complaining like to show you what they're good at. Go be the person that they're showing. You know, go learn about that stuff. And once you've learned, move on to the next thing. Um, and before you know it, you'll have, you'll have enough exposure to be a, a decent engineer to the, to the technicians. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's good, a good place to start uh, wrapping up because we are just, we are running out of time. We definitely okay. went off topic from maintenance task analysis, but <laughs> that I, 
I don't know if there's ever been a podcast where I stay on topic for the whole episode. Um, it wouldn't be a good one if you did. <laughs> <laughs> People would be asleep more. Yeah. FDA. <laughs> there's a training course for that, right? That's right. <laughs> um, some guys to talk about that stuff anyway. Yeah, exactly. So um, before we before we close out there, is there any, uh, do you have any upcoming events? I know uh, through East Partnership, you've got a lot, a lot going on. Um, what do you what do you have coming up and how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, so easiest place to reach me is on LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, I try to stay active on there. I pretty much don't populate too many other social media platforms. I pretty much put most of my, my, my you know, time into LinkedIn. So it's an easy place to reach me. Um, YouTube channel, that's another place, uh, East Partnership. Um, and then, of course, you can reach me through the site if you need to at eastpartnership.org. Um, anyone who has an account on there can email me anytime they want. So and accounts are free. So I don't know if I'm going to regret saying that, but <laughs> I still get tons of emails from people, <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's easiest to find me there. And then as far as things coming up, um, you know, so let me just a little disclaimer. I am excited about East partnership, not because it's showing off things I do. It's because it shows off things other people do. Right. The whole premise of, of this of the platform was to bring industry leading entrepreneurs um, a, a learning management system that they could easily get their information developed and their courses developed and launched so we could benefit the users out in the community, the people that want to be learners from those people. And they don't have to, you know, it's hard to nail down some of these people and get their time face to face. So, and by the way, getting them all the way across country or across the world's not easy, especially during a time like this. So um, you know, so oftentimes my successes are actually the successes of my of my partners. So Jesus Safante is uh, our RCM um, guru. He is uh, from Conscious Reliability, and uh, Jesus and I have been working on his next uh, hybrid course, which starts in May. I think it's May seventh. I think is the first day. And the way that course is laid out is it's a it's a basic RCM course. It's uh, four weeks. Um, it's on demand and live. You have one live session with Jesus for two hours each week. And you just meet with Jesus once a week for four weeks. And then in between your meetings, you, you do your own online learning and, and practice. And so that's a really cool course. Um, uh, Suzanne Greenman uh, from Greenman Asset Management Academy. She just launched an asset information management course. That's awesome. Um, so people that are looking for information management recommendations in the AM field, uh, that's amazing. And then um, Sonia Mathura, she has her entire lubrication engineering uh, um, course suite on, on East Partnership. So we've been pushing really hard to get the LoRa course, the MTA course for my stuff out, and then get all of their products out so we can start helping people. Um, so a lot of what we're doing is based on that. We're doing free webinars. I'm doing live webinars at least once a week. Um, I'll post them on LinkedIn, but um, we're, we're, we're launching them basically from um, YouTube right now. Uh, hoping to get out to SMRP this October. So uh, that's going to be awesome. And we're going to do a maintenance uh, community webinar. Uh, Jesus Safante and I are on RCM here shortly, actually like mid-May. Um, and we'll be launching uh, or advertising dates on that um, as soon as uh, we get them locked up this week. So that's kind of what's been going on with us. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I love what you're doing with East Partnership. It's uh, I'll make sure all those links are put on in the description for the episode and of course uh we're chatting with lucas all the time so if if you can't yes, get a whole if you're you're looking for him you don't remember any of that you can just send us an email and i'll get you in touch with them 
So thanks Absolutely. for coming on the show, Lucas. Sorry. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And um, it's always it's always great talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm sure you'll be on sooner than later again. <laughs> I hope so. 